Greetings to everyone in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our reading today is coming from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 26. And it reads as follows. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lamp. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and that and the one who will... who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things that, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks again to Zonke for that reading and to... Tebza for the prayer earlier. Um, he, Tebza omitted to mention that he is one of our leaders. He's on the church council. It's good for you to know your leaders. You know, at some churches, they have a little box that says suggestions and complaints. We have Tebza, all right? 
So any problems, any problems whatsoever, Tebs is your man. Uh, of course, I'm joking. You can come to anyone in, on, on leadership. It's really important for you to know who your leaders are. And so when the council members come up here, I do ask them to introduce themselves as such. They're not blowing trumpets. They're not announcing themselves with trumpets. It's just good for us as a church family to know who our leadership are. So uh, please do bear that in mind. I'm going to open in a word of prayer for us, and then we're going to come to that passage. Heavenly Father, we praise you uh, that you are a God who moves towards his people in love. We praise you that you have sent your Son. Father and Son, we praise you that you have sent your Spirit to be in our midst, to, to bless us, to make us into a people, to give us life, to give us new birth, to help us to walk in that life through the Son and to the Father. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would be with us even now as we come to your word, that you would wield your sword, that you would separate uh, joint from marrow, that you would work in our hearts and reveal the Father to us through the Son. Uh, Spirit of God, we long to leave here changed people. We long to leave here in step with you. And so we throw ourselves on your mercy. Amen. Uh, if you remember, we, we worked through this very same passage five weeks ago. I can't remember what I had for breakfast, but five weeks ago, we worked through this very same passage. Hopefully, you have some recollection in the archives there. At the time, I said that God willing, we would come back to this passage, and he is willing. Here we are. He's good to us, but I think a recap is in order. So very briefly, let's remind ourselves of where we are. Paul says to the Galatian churches, Christ has set you free. That's the headline. That's the banner over this passage. Christ, by his work on the cross, has set you free at great cost to himself. Your freedom was purchased by his blood. You are free. That's the headline. He goes on to say that because Christ has set you free, do not use that precious freedom to go back under slavery, the slavery of the law. Don't do that. That was the particular pressure the Galatians were under. Counter-missionaries were telling them that for full covenant membership, they needed to supplement Jesus with circumcision. And circumcision was a rite of passage into the whole of the Mosaic law. In other words, they were saying, you need to complete, it's good that you have Jesus, you need to complete him with Moses. Of course, the gospel says the exact opposite. It says that Moses is fulfilled by Jesus. Moses is the shadow, Jesus is the reality. And so Paul says, don't use your freedom to go back under the law, that's slavery. But then to answer his critics, he adds that they also mustn't use their freedom for the flesh. That's just trading one kind of slavery for another. Christ has set you free. Don't use that freedom for law or for sin. Christ has set you free. The freedom he gives is freedom from law and freedom from sin. 
Ringing any bells? I hope so. That was last time. And I, and I hope you can hear it was all about freedom from. Freedom from. Today we want to answer the question, what is our freedom for? That's today's question. What is our freedom for? Now before we even begin to uh, hazard an answer, I hope you see how radical that question is. Because that's not how we think of freedom. We think of freedom as freedom from. Uh, Freedom, just think about how we tend to think about freedom. Freedom is freedom from all constraints. Freedom from all limitations, from obstacles, from any kind of challenge to my will. Freedom from limits. To talk about freedom for something, that's to ruin the party. The moment you say, actually, your freedom is for X, what are you doing? You're defining freedom. You're putting boundaries around freedom. And that's no freedom. That's imposing limitations. Because now you are telling me what to do with my freedom. And that's no freedom at all. The motto of freedom is that I do me. To be free means I do me. And no one can tell me what to use my freedom for. That's the very essence of freedom. That's how we tend to think about freedom. The part of our constitution, our national constitution, that captures our fundamental freedoms is called what? The Bill of, the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights. You are entitled to these things. Have you noticed? There isn't a Bill of Responsibilities. We are all about rights. We're not so big on responsibilities. We are all about freedom from. We're not so big on freedom for. We are lukewarm at best when it comes to freedom for. The freedom Christ gives us is different. It's radically different. It is a freedom from. It's no less than that. It is a freedom from, but it's a freedom from precisely so that it can be a freedom for. We want to find all of that in our passage. So let's do that. Anyone here heard of two ways to live? Anyone heard of two ways to live? There's a smattering of us. Well, now, I think because we've read Galatians, we can go one better. Because Paul is giving us three ways to live. Let me show you. It's right there in chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. Look at the second half of verse 16. It has this little phrase. Gratify the desires of the flesh. That's one way to live. One way to live is to gratify the desires of the flesh. There's another way at the end of verse 18. Under the law. There's another way to live. So you can live by gratifying the desires of the flesh, or you can live under the law. But Paul's just said, we've been set free from both of those. So what's the alternative? Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Did you see them? Did you hear them? Our three ways to live? 
flesh, law, and spirit. And we see exactly the same thing again. Paul rehearses the the very same cycle in verses 22 to 24. There's law in verse 23. There's flesh in verse 24. What's the alternative? Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And against such things there is no law. There it is again. There is no law. But those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Did you, did you see it again there? Three ways to live. Law, flesh, or spirit. Paul says, the law and the flesh are slavery. We've been set free from them. The alternative is life in the spirit. Paul says, repeatedly, life in the spirit is not life in the flesh. But then he's so very quick to add, it's also not life under the law. And then when he says life in the spirit is not life under the law, he's very quick to add, but it's also not life in the flesh. Now, why is he doing that? Why is he bouncing between them? Saying this and then qualifying. It's because he knows all too well that the devil likes to set his traps in pairs. The devil wants us to run away from sin so that we can run blindly into law-keeping into slavery under the law. And he wants us to flee from the law so that we fall into the trap of sin. Do you see how he works? He's so wily. He's so clever. And isn't this exactly what we do? Isn't this exactly what we do? We run away from the strictness of religion into the wild rebellion of sin. And then we flee from the wreckage of our sinful past only to cause even more damage in a life of harsh legalism. Paul says there are two traps, and the only way to avoid both of them is life in the Spirit. But what is this life in the Spirit? What does the life of freedom look like? In other words, what is our freedom for? I'm going to give you Paul's basic answer in a sentence. The sentence is this. Our freedom is a walk through the wilderness with a guide. That might not be what you're expecting. Let me try and unpack it. Our freedom is a walk through the wilderness with a guide. Paul uses throughout Galatians, if you read it carefully, you won't even have to read it carefully. If you just read it, you're going to see repeatedly, over and over again, the language of slavery, freedom, redemption. Now, we miss this But if a Jewish rabbi used those ideas, those words, those categories in the first century, it would signal only one thing to a Hebrew audience. What would it signal? The Exodus. It would signal the Exodus. You're talking about slavery, then freedom and redemption. You're talking about the Exodus. Paul had the Exodus in mind. He was using Exodus categories to explain the freedom that we have in Christ to the Galatian churches. Now, you remember the Exodus story. Israel was redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. They passed through the waters into the wilderness. There in the wilderness, they were led by a pillar of fire to the promised land where they would love and serve their God. That's the Exodus in a thumbnail sketch, and that is 
the narrative framework that Paul is using to describe what God has done to win our freedom in Christ and what that freedom looks like. What exactly does he say? He says, you've been redeemed by Christ from slavery to the law and slavery to sin. Right? You've been redeemed. You are free. Now what? Chapter 5, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Chapter 5, verse 18. Be led by the Spirit, and you are no longer under the law. Chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, the free life, the life of freedom, the Christian life, can be summed up as a walk, follow, keep in step with the Spirit. It's a journey of liberated slaves through the desert of this life with God as our guide. That's freedom in Christ. A journey of liberated slaves through the desert of this life with God as our guide. And like any journey, any good journey, this journey has a destination. Chapter 6, verse 8, we didn't read it. I'll read it for us. You can turn there if you like. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul is switching metaphors here. He's switching from walking to farming. But the idea is exactly the same. Just like walking through the desert, farming is a long-term investment. Ask Eddie. There are no quick fixes. There's no silver bullet. There's no shortcuts. This thing is season after season, year in, year out. It's a long-term investment with a reward at the end. There's going to be a harvest. This journey has a final destination. 6 verse 8 describes that harvest, that destination, in the words, eternal life. The promised land is on the other side of the desert. That's where we're headed. So our freedom in Christ is a long walk through the wilderness with a guide. That's what Paul's saying. A few things we want to notice about that, about our freedom. Firstly, our freedom is now and not yet. Christ has set us free. If you are in Christ this morning, if you are trusting in him, if you are submitting yourself to his lordship here this morning, then you're free. He has set you free. But you're not yet, I'm sure I don't need to persuade you, you're not yet in the promised land. We are free, but there's more freedom to come. We are free from slavery. We are on our way home where we will experience all the blessings and the fullness of that freedom. But right now, right now, we're walking in the desert as free people on our way home, but we're in the desert. Our freedom is now and not yet. Second thing we want to notice, the freedom of now, the freedom of now is long and hot and hard. This is how Paul says it. Verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The Christian life is not easy. 
The Christian life is not a walk in the park. It's a walk through the desert. It's a long walk. You can ask any Christian who's been a Christian for any length of time, and there are many in this room, and they will tell you this thing is not a sprint. It's an ultramarathon. Near the end of his life, uh, Australian evangelist John Chapman, he, used, he had this way of relating to new Christians who were for the first time discovering that, yes, this, this Christian life is hard. He would say to them, don't worry, the first 60 years are the hardest. <laughs> the Christian life is a long journey. It's also hot and hard. If you are trying to move through the desert... You face the relentless opposition of the sand and the heat and the hunger and the thirst. If you are trying to move through this world as a Christian, you face the relentless opposition of the world and the devil and your own sinful nature, the flesh. In the desert, you're constantly tempted to go back to Egypt or to chase a mirage out into nowhere. In the Christian life, you're constantly tempted to go back under the law. It's slavery, but at least it gave you the illusion of being in control. On the other side, you're constantly tempted to give in to sin. Sin looks just like an oasis. Sin promises so much relief and satisfaction. The only problem is that when you get there, you're going to drink sand and you're going to eat the wind. There's nothing there. It's a mirage. Sin is a lie. The Christian life is long and hot and hard. Don't expect anything else and don't let anyone sell you anything else. TBN. If you're only ever experiencing something else, well, then you've probably stopped walking. Or you've turned back to Egypt. Or you've wandered off to chase the mirage. The Christian life is long and hot and hard. But know this, we are free. We walk this journey as free people in Christ. And we have a guide who loves us. A guide who is faithful a God who keeps his promises and he has promised to get us to the end. So put your trust in him. He's going to get us home. It's what he's promised to do. Third thing we want to notice about our freedom, and it's related to what we've been saying, we are walking. Stating the obvious, we are walking. This is a dynamic freedom. We are on the move. We're not settling here. We're not putting down roots. We're not pitching our tents here. This is not our home. We are just passing through. We are citizens of a better country on our way home. If we keep reminding ourselves and each other of that fundamental truth, you know what it does? It does remarkable things to those extreme areas of our experience. Our joys and our sorrows. Our earthly joys... Don't become attachments. They don't become anchors. They don't tempt us to, to stop here and worship this earthly joy. No. They're just signboards 
Markers pointing us home, reminding us of the source of all joy. They keep us moving with urgency, these joys. These little earthly joys, a good meal, a beautiful sunrise, friendship. Those wonderful moments in marriage. They don't become things we stop and worship. They remind us of where this joy comes from. They keep us moving home. And our sorrows, it's the same with our sorrows. We can bear those sorrows, as unbearable as they may seem. We can bear them because they're only temporary. When we compare them to the weight of eternal glory, like the Apostle Paul does, we have to admit that he's right. We can rejoice that he's right. When we compare them to the eternal weight of glory, they are nothing but light and momentary afflictions. The words he uses. So we can bear all things. And we can rejoice in all things. Because we are headed for home. And there's freedom in that. We are not a slave to the highs or the lows of this life. The last thing we want to notice is the relationship between us and the guide. The guide and us. The best way I can think to say it is something like this. We have a guide. Praise be to God that we have a guide. But we do the walking. The verbs governing what we're supposed to do in the passage that Zonke read for us, they're both active and passive. What do we mean by that? Well, walk, keep in step. That's an active verb. Be led is passive. Do you hear the passivity in that? Be led. And that said, even, even the active command to walk is a walking by the Spirit. You see, the Spirit gives us both strength and direction to our walk. In other words, we must walk, but we never walk alone. Right? And that walking alone is not in the sense of the Liverpool fan club. For those of you who are getting excited. Okay? That's not an endorsement. We never walk alone because we don't walk in our own strength. And we don't choose our own direction, our own course. Listen to what Paul says to the Philippian churches. These words are astounding. They're remarkable. Just listen to them. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation, you Philippian Christians. Work it out. Very next verse. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Do you hear the tension there? In the Christian life, you have to work. You have to work. But you work by the power of God's work in you. And you work for his good purposes. Same thing in Galatians. You have to walk. We have to walk. But our direction and our strength to take just this next step doesn't come from us. We don't dig deep. No. It comes from the Spirit of Christ living in us. What does that mean? It means that if we get there, if we actually get to the promised land, it's a gift from start to finish. We live by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit. We are walking and we are working. But if we get there, 
God did it. On the other hand, if we don't get there, well, it's because we've wandered off. Either we've turned, turned aside to chase a mirage, the mirage of sin into, the, into nowhere, and so we die in the desert, or we turn back to the law, to life in Egypt, and we die there. Either way, we've given up the freedom we have in Christ, and we die as slaves. So don't wander off, and don't look back. Don't look back. Follow your guide. He is faithful and trustworthy and patient and long-suffering with sinners, and his mercy knows no end. Just keep going back to him in repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Keep turning back to him. He'll get you there. He'll get us there. Our freedom is a long walk through the wilderness with a guide, but it's more than that. Our freedom is a long walk through the wilderness with a guide together. And so now finally we arrive at the answer to our question, what is our freedom for? What is it for? Look at verse 13 again. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh Okay, Paul, then what should we use it for? But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, we see our three ways to live. Our freedom is not for the flesh. Verse 13, it is not for sinful self-indulgence. And our freedom is not for the law. Verse 14, it is not for self-righteous law-keeping. It's not for self-indulgence. It's not for self-righteousness. What is it for? Our freedom is for spirit-filled, loving service. Our freedom is for others. That's what our freedom's for. Love is at the heart of the Christian life. Love is the essence of Christian freedom. God loved us first. We're going to come to the table and be reminded of just how he loved us in a few moments' time. God loved us first and that awakened in us the ability, the capacity to love. He's given us new life and that new life is love. And he did it at the cross. He loved us first and so we love. And so now we love as children of the God of love, we love. The greatest, his greatest commandment is to love him with all our being. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. God's love for us in his spirit, empowers us to do that. You see, we are headed for home. We are headed for home, but it's not as though this walk across the desert doesn't matter. No, the Christian life is maybe not yet, but it's also now. It's now. It matters. We are free, and our freedom has a purpose. Our freedom is for love. The New Testament has... um, Lists of virtues that define Christian character. They're all over the place. You bump into them everywhere. The majority of those lists either begin or they end with love. You can check me on this. Or they make love the most prominent virtue. In fact, the New Testament writers had to come up with a new word to capture the heart of what they were talking about, the heart of the Christian life. They needed a new word. 
And the word they chose was agape. It was a word that expressed a particular brand of self-sacrificial, other person-centered love. That word was hardly ever used in ancient Greek literature. Hardly ever. But it just explodes on the pages of the New Testament. So central was the idea of love that the apostles needed to hijack a word to try and capture what they were saying is the heart of this faith. So when Paul lists the fruits of the Spirit, it should be no surprise to us that he begins with love. In fact, the other virtues are just manifestations of that love. So let me show you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, patience, kindness. But then to the Corinthians, Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind, and the greatest of these is love. And then to the Colossians, he says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Love is the heart of the Christian life. And my brothers and sisters, love is the essence of our freedom. We wanted to know what our freedom is for. Simple one-word answer. Our freedom is for love. We want to unpack that a little. Before we get there, just a quick refresher on how freedom relates to slavery. So how does love relate to the law and to the flesh? Remember, there are three ways to live. Love in the spirit. Life under the law, life gratifying the desires of the flesh. How does this love in the spirit relate to law and to flesh? Let me give you the punchline. Love overcomes the flesh and love fulfills the law. How does love overcome the flesh? Verse 13 again. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh... But through love, serve one another. And then in verse 19 to 21, he unpacks what he means by opportunities for the flesh. And there he includes jealousy, rivalry, dissension, and division. We're going to use those as an example because they're so familiar to us. We live in this world. We know all about jealousy, rivalry, dissension, and division. They are not new to us. But what happens if you love someone? What happens then? Strange thing. Strange thing. You actually begin to want the best for them. You want them to do well. You want them to flourish. You want them to prosper. And when they do, the thing that rises in your heart is not jealousy. It's joy. I mean, imagine... Imagine being able to look at someone else's success and not feel envy, but actually rejoice. That's the revolution that love causes in our hearts. If you love someone, they are not a rival. They are not competition. They are on your team. Their success is your success. It's no longer a competitive zero-sum game. You know, if they win, you lose, so you better win. No, love is a positive-sum game. If they win, you win. That's what love does. And that is a revolution. Think about um, dissension and division. 
if you love someone, you can disagree with them. Even deeply disagree, even profoundly disagree. In fact, you may disagree with them precisely because you love them. Because love and truth always hold together. And love will always speak the truth. So you, you disagree, but that disagreement gives you no pleasure. And the one thing you can't do in that disagreement is the thing we normally do. You know, when you, when you get to a stage in, a, in, a, in an argument or a disagreement or a division, a dissension, where you go, I'm done. I'm done with you. You are dead to me. I'm having nothing more to do with you. That's the one thing love won't let you do. It won't let you do that. We can't do that. that. That can never happen in the church. Not that kind of dismissive, you are dead to me disagreement. Never. No. You find yourself praying for this person. You can't explain why. You don't particularly want to. But these are the demands of love. This is how Christ has loved us. You have no peace until you've worked this thing out. You can't live with it on your conscience. You're more concerned about, you find yourself being more concerned about understanding than being understood. It's not natural to you. It's the work of the Spirit in your life. You are quick to listen. You're slow to speak. You're slow to get angry. All because you love this person. So you can disagree, but your disagreement at its bottom in its foundation, is full of goodwill. You can disagree sharply, but you never stop wanting the best for this person because you love them. And love overcomes the flesh. Love also fulfills the law. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's take the Ten Commandments. You know, sometimes I think we get confused. Um, obviously, the Ten Commandments are right at the heart of the law, but we, the, our area of confusion is we tend to think of, well, there was the law, there was the Old Testament, and then there was love. And then God did love. So he did law in the Old Testament, and then he came to love. No, the goal of the law was always love. The purpose, the intent of the law was always love. I mean, Jesus makes it so plain to us. When he's asked to sum up the law, what does he say? He gives the greatest commandments, and they are commandments to love. So let's just think about the Ten Commandments. Let's just go on that journey. They are negatively stated to restrain sin, but the goal is always love. The negative prohibition opens out endless space for positive love. Okay, let me try and explain what I mean. First commandment, you shall have no other gods. Okay. So you stop at having no other gods. No. Of course not. What does love do with that commandment? Love takes no other gods and explodes it out into full, wholehearted worship and devotion of the one true God. Do you see? It's meant for love. Second commandment starts out with do not take the Lord's name in vain. But love takes that, runs with it, and moves us to a place where we are cherishing and honoring that name. Hallowed be your name. We start with do not murder. But love's not going to leave us there. You haven't killed anyone this week. Pat on the back. Love moves us to want to see our neighbors flourishing. Living the full life. Living the life abundant that Jesus came to give us. We start with no adultery. 
Okay, so can you live in another city and exchange the occasional email? No. Love moves us to lay down my life for my spouse. That's because, do you see, love fulfills the law. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. How? In love, in perfect love. And in the power of his spirit, we can witness to his fulfillment of the law, his perfect fulfillment of the law in our own lives. We can witness to it. And in fact, that's what our freedom is for. One last thing we want to understand in closing is this. Love is not just sentiment. You know, good vibrations. Love is very practical. Love is deep affection. It's nothing less than that. Love is deep affection, but it's deep affection that works itself out in everyday practice, in concrete ways. And Paul gives us a very practical, straightforward list in chapter 6, verse 1 following. So you can read there with me again. We didn't read this. Or you can just listen. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you hear it? Verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Love in the Galatian church is meant restoring someone who's caught in their sin and helping someone out materially. Do you see? On the spectrum, it's, it's everything from the very spiritual to the ordinary, mundane, and very practical, and everything in between. Love spans all of this. So many opportunities for love. As you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. As we have opportunity, it's everything from restoring someone who's fallen into sin to lending a hand financially. It's everything and everything in between. In this passage, Paul is using language of bearing with each other, bearing each other's burdens, not growing weary, not giving up. We are back on our walk through the wilderness. It's the language he's using. So as we walk through the desert of this life, love means picking up those who have fallen down. It means running after those who have wandered from the faith. We don't just grumble about it and gossip about them. No, we pursue them. We've got to get them back. That's what love does. That's how love compels us. We chase after them. We bring them back to the guide. We bring them back to the group where there's safety. We help them to get their bearings and to get back on course. Love means sharing your food with a fellow pilgrim who's hungry. And I'm not saying that metaphorically. It means giving a drink to another pilgrim who's thirsty. It means using your strength to carry someone on your back who has no more strength to carry themselves. That's love. Love means encouraging another who just wants to give up. And how many of us have been there? That's love. Do you see what our freedom is for? We are on our way to the promised land. 
We have to get each other there. You don't get there alone. We've got to get each other there. You don't just have to get yourself there. We've got to get each other there. We have to bring as many as we can with us. We have to do whatever it takes. That's love. And that's what your freedom in Christ is for. Now, this sermon boils down to this one thing. If you, if you got a little bit lost in the weeds, it comes down to this, right? This is what it comes down to. You can use your faith, your freedom. You can use your freedom in Christ. You can use it for sinful self-indulgence. You can use it for self-righteous law-keeping. Or you can use it for love in the power of the Spirit. What are you using your freedom for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for, the, for this precious freedom that we've been speaking about. And Lord, as we come to your table to be reminded of the cross, we acknowledge again that it's a freedom that we could only ever have in your Son and in the power of your Spirit. So Father, please will you help us to use that freedom, that precious blood-bought freedom, for love. Help us to love you with undivided hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us, Father, to, to follow our guide through the wilderness of this life. And please, by the power of your Spirit, help us to get each other home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.